and we start the show with buzzard messages. Buzzard writes in, Chris Johnson is done just because you say so? Okay. Oh, uh, really? Really? Do we have to go through this exercise? Do I have to address Chris Johnson on a follow-up show? We couldn't dismiss Chris Johnson after one show. We have to go and it has to bleed into a second show. Chris Johnson of all people. I can't have one sports opinion. Where I just said, hey, you know what? Chris Johnson's done. Chris Johnson's a non-factor at this point in his career. I can't just have one sports opinion that's just broad, generic analysis without any data behind it. I can't say one, I can't make one statement that's not data proven and get away with it on this show. Just circling, circling, circling these buzzards. Just defecating on my head if I don't hit you with... One, two, three, four advanced metrics to bolster my argument. I can't just say, you know what? Chris Johnson doesn't have anything left in the tank because that's self-evident. Because I'm trying to move on and talk about players I would rather talk about. Players with lots left in the tank like Andre Williams and David Johnson. But no, 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 no. No, no, fine, fine. No, we're going back. We're going back. We're going back, everybody. We're going back. We can't be done with Chris Johnson. No, no, we have to go back. We have, we, I have a lot to talk about today. Nope, doesn't matter. No, the buzzard wants to go back and talk about Chris Johnson. So let's do it. Let's go back. Playerprofiler.com forward slash NFL forward slash Chris dash Johnson. 2013. Yards per carry 3.9. Production premium negative 0.5. Both outside the top 30. 2014, yards per carry, 4.3. Pretty good. Pretty good. Somehow. Not sure how he did that. Production premium, negative 14.7. 58th in the league. So while his yards per carry improved year over year, his production premium collapsed. So the based on the situations that Chris Johnson found himself in in 2014, he was near the bottom of the league in efficiency because production premium is a situation agnostic efficiency metric. It wasn't the fault of his supporting cast either. And you know that by looking at the juke rate. 19.6 juke rate evaded tackles per touch in 2014 for Chris Johnson was 58th in the league. So he was 58th in the league in juke rate and 58th in the league in production premium. So he was league bottom in both of those key efficiency metrics. That is a player that is done. That is a player at the end of his career who is about to be flushed out of the league. And I was surprised when the Arizona Cardinals signed him because based on these efficiency metrics, I expected Chris Johnson to be flushed out of the league and to be in some sewage pipe somewhere down in the bowels of the city and never be heard from again. But now he's back and he's distracting people from the real story. The real story that Andre Ellington is just a guy. Andre Ellington is the closest thing to a Jag that's not a Jaguar. If Andre Ellington were traded to the Jaguars today, that would be apropos. Yes, it would, because he's a Jag. <laughs> I don't know why that word makes me laugh, Jag. The real story is an opening. Clearly, the Arizona Cardinals 
don't have faith in Andre Ellington. They've made that crystal clear with their moves in the offseason, drafting David Johnson and now signing Chris Johnson. And the guy I'm excited about is David Johnson. It's not Chris Johnson. I know I usually say I love all the Johnsons. Give me all the Johnsons. I want to get my hands on every Johnson out there. <laughs> but in this case, no. No, not Chris Johnson. Every Johnson but Chris Johnson. It's just not a Johnson I'm interested in. He's not, he doesn't have, he's small also. So he's a small Johnson, 5'11", 191. He's an old Johnson, 30 years old. So there's a lot about that particular Johnson, which doesn't get me as excited as I am about David Johnson. I'm even more excited about Duke Johnson. Don't even get me started with Charles Johnson. Those are some young Johnsons, some bigger Johnsons. Those I want to get my hands on. Those are the Johnsons I dream about. But if I can't get my hands on a Johnson with the Arizona Cardinals, there is another guy that I'm interested in. Because it's, it, I'm buying David Johnson because he's proven at the college level that he can be the focal point of an offense in a way that Andre Ellington never has. But if David Johnson ends up being more Kristen Michael, which is possible, just an athletic freak that doesn't have great football skills at the NFL level, that is possible. Kristen Michael outcome is in David Johnson's range of outcomes. So therefore, if that happens, if David Johnson doesn't fire, I still like Kerwin Williams. Even though Kerwin Williams is currently behind two Johnsons, he's looking up at two Johnsons. Kerwin Williams is right now, and that's a problem for Kerwin Williams. You don't want to be looking up at two Johnsons. No one ever does. But Kerwin Williams has proven, just like David Johnson, that he can be the focal point of an offense. At Utah State, Kerwin Williams posted a 35.7% dominator rating. He accounted for over 35% of their offense. That's a huge number. And posted a 6.9 yards per carry, 93rd percentile efficiency at the college level. And he's mildly athletic, not hugely athletic. He's got a 50th percentile spark score, just average. But what I like about him, 4.48 speed. So he is the fastest running back on the Arizona Cardinals roster. And he's roughly the same size as Andre Ellington. So you might say, well, he's small, he's under 200 pounds, but the Cardinals had no problem giving the starting role to a sub-200-pound running back last year. Why can't they do that with Kerwin Williams? In fact, last year he did start a couple games. He had 53 carries, and he had a 4.6 yards per carry last year and a 29.1% juke rate. That was 21st in the league. So he's evasive. He can break tackles. He can evade tackles and post a yards per carry above 4.5 despite having an average offensive line. So... In limited time, he showed himself to be efficient at the professional level. He's also showed himself to be hugely productive and, and be a bell cow at the college level. And we know he's fast. So that's a player I like. That's a player in very deep leagues I am still rostering because clearly the Arizona Cardinals are just crawling around in the dark looking for a running back. That's how you end up with Chris Johnson on your roster. Desperation. And so knowing that the Arizona Cardinals are feeling a sense of desperation as it relates to their running back position, look at the Kerwin Williams profile and stash that guy because that's a depth chart that can be easily ascended as opposed to being banished to the Cincinnati Bengals depth chart. Forget that. Gio Bernard, Jeremy Hill. Nice knowing you, Terrell Watson. Another buzzard writes in. Are you really buying Andre Williams? 
yes, I am still buying Andre Williams. I know it's hard to believe based on last year's 3.3 yards per carry, but here's why. Most exceptionally athletic big power backs who are productive in college are also productive at the professional level. And on our last show, we did a show poll. Can you think of exceptions to this rule? And we received two glaring exceptions. Number one, Trent Richardson. Oof. True. Ooh. <laughs> the hole is to the left. Trent Richardson will run to the right. If the hole is to the right, Trent Richardson will run to the left. Why? I don't know. Toby Gerhardt. Oof. A little unfair with Toby Gerhardt. Suffered a high ankle sprain in week one, 2014. Was never the same. But again, you can't use that excuse. That's the excuse I yelled at people for using yesterday with Andre Ellington. So I'm not going to use it with Toby Gerhardt. Toby Gerhardt's 2014 efficiency is his 2014 efficiency. And it just looks like Toby Gerhardt's athleticism doesn't translate onto the football field for whatever reason. He is a big, fast running back that looks like a big, plodding running back. There's a lot of running backs that have not translated their athleticism onto the field. Sean Green has an upper percentile burst score, yet when you watch Sean Green play, never does the word burst ever fire in your brain. That thought. Never. So that happens. It just happens. What are you going to do? I'm buying Andre Williams because there are very few examples of the running back who is the hardest working player on his team with a prolific resume and upper echelon athleticism, not finding a way to ascend once he masters the nuances of his position. I mean, th that's the thesis behind acquiring Andre Williams in fantasy. Now, another buzzard writes in. I like Ellington still because of Bruce Arians. It's all about the system, Mansion. Oh, it's all about the system. Right, okay. Uh, no, it's not. So no, it's not. It's, if it was all about the system, that you could just deplete your talent pool constantly like the Eagles are doing, sell off talent, sell off all your disgruntled pieces like the Eagles at 70 cents on the dollar and still expect to win. Could Bruce Arians or Chip Kelly win in the NFL with the Ohio State football team from 2014 because they have great systems? No. You need players and you need talent. That's what wins. The system doesn't win. And you might say, well, that's, a, that's an absurd extreme hypothetical. Of course, they can't win with such inferior competition. Well, then, then don't give me the system argument then. All it takes is one hypothetical to expose the absurdity of a definitive position. The system is what matters. If that's what you're saying to me, that it's an absolute truth, that the system is what drives the performance, then all it takes is one example to nullify that position. All it takes is one even absurd hypothetical to expose that argument and nullify it. So when you are declaring something as a fact or a rule, it has to stand up to all examples, even the ridiculous hypotheticals. Matthew Barry wrote on Twitter that he didn't pick up Jermaine Gresham because Bruce Arians' tight ends are never productive. Never mind that Heath Miller had his best seasons with Arians. Never mind that. And then I replied to Matthew Barry, what if Rob Gronkowski were traded to the Cardinals? What then? Would he be a tight end one in fantasy? Of course. So get out of here with your hard-coded fantasy football rule book, crossing players off for reasons that are not really reasons. I don't dismiss any players, except Blake Bortles. I'll admit that. I simply decide what I'm willing to pay for every player and either buy them or not. 
It's not that hard. You don't need to have a Sharpie in a rule book and spend half your time crossing out players on the draft list. That whole notion is silly. Of course I'm buying Jermaine Gresham if I like his cost. doesn't matter who his offensive coordinator is. And the idea that the offensive coordinator is going to make the difference between Jermaine Gresham being fantasy relevant or not being fantasy relevant is patently absurd. And the absurdity of that position is exposed when I give you the hypothetical of what if Rob Gronkowski were on the Cardinals? What then? Oh, and then it just falls apart. If it's a hard and fast rule, it needs to stand up to every possible example. More buzzard. We had a buzzard record. Contact the show at Roto Underworld on Twitter. Email the show, rotounderworld at gmail.com. <laughs> Unbelievable record amount of buzzard messages. I don't know what happened. I don't know what kind of inspiration washed over the audience in the last few days. But wow, have I received a lot of messages. A lot of them positive, so thank you. But some like this. You somehow managed to bring up Jeff Janis's name in a conversation about Arizona Cardinals running backs. You sound like such a fanboy, it's pathetic. Ouch. Oh, man. Ouch. Ouch. That one hurt. Very few messages hurt. That one cut a little bit. That one, I had to kind of take a breath after reading that message. That one, that one dug. It was a good dig. It really was. And it bothered me for a moment. And then I relaxed. My shoulders relaxed. Everything relaxed. I laid back. And I didn't think about that email ever again because it, I realized I'm not a fanboy. That's just not what I am. I have conviction. There's a difference. And I'm not alone. I saw Jeff Janis be traded for a second round pick recently. So someone's out there acquiring Jeff Janis for a second rounder. That is a major increase in the value of Jeff Janis in, on, in various fantasy formats. Now, I've already traded for Jeff Janis in every league that I'm in, every dynasty league in particular. And my tactics for acquiring Jeff Janis were simple. I just continued to up the ante until the other team relented and traded him to me. That was my, it was pretty simple, pretty simple tactic, really. I received Jeff Janis straight up for Marquez Wilson. I received Jeff Janis straight up for Jordan Reed. And I received Jeff Janis straight up for Rashad Jennings. And this was before preseason. This was six months ago. His value has increased. Because now Jeff Janis is getting more recognition, more appreciation. And we may be witnessing, and this is not fanboy talking, this is rational Fantasy analyst Matt Kelly talking. Matt Kelly from Roto Underworld Radio. I'm all about the numbers. We may be witnessing Jeff Janis ascending. That's right. The problem is we don't know when an ascent is happening at the time. When you're in it, you don't see it. You're too close to the forest to see the trees. Once you zoom out, you can see, wow, that's when the ascent started. I didn't perceive it at the time because I wasn't sure if it was a fluke. Now looking back, I can see it wasn't a fluke. That's what happened with Odell Beckham Jr. last year. He had a couple of big games, a couple exciting games, highlight catches, wide receiver one weeks in fantasy. Was it a fluke or not? We didn't know. We didn't know we were watching an ascent into the upper ranks, into the upper echelon of fantasy wide receivers until the season was over and we could digest what we just saw, what we just witnessed, an unprecedented 14-week run by a rookie wide receiver. 
And now he's being drafted in the top five wide receivers in every format. It makes sense. Look at what he did last year. It was special. It was unprecedented. It was exciting. It was an ascension. That's what an ascension looks like. But in the beginning, in the first few weeks, you didn't know it. Just like with Victor Cruz, when he was scoring multiple touchdowns in preseason games, you didn't know that that was the start of an ascension until you look back and said, oh, slap your forehead. Remember when he was making those huge plays in preseason? Oh, slap your forehead. Should have seen it then. Should have processed it then. You didn't. It's okay. But now I'm faced with a what-if scenario. What if one of these people that is starting to value Jeff Janis highly wants to acquire him from me? What do I do? How much would I be willing to sell Jeff Janis for if presented with the opportunity? And I'm always fascinated with this friction between conviction and idealism, of pragmatism and realism, because I have this affinity for Jeff Janis. I have this idea, this idealist notion of Jeff Janis and what his ceiling is as a wide receiver one in fantasy. You know, taking over the Jordy Nelson role with the Green Bay Packers and with Aaron Rodgers. These are the things that I think about. This is where my idealist thoughts about Jeff Janis, that's where they go. And it reminds me of a book when I think about this friction between conviction and idealism and realism and pragmatism. So you have these two things. You have conviction and idealism over here, and you have pragmatism and realism over there. And there is a book. It's called All the King's Men by Robert Penn Warren. And that book deals with this friction really well. The book centers around a main character named Willie Stark, and it mirrors the story of Huey Long, who is also known as the Kingfisher, which is just a great nickname, Kingfisher. He's the most infamous slash famous slash infamous governor of Louisiana in the early 1900s. And he was the personification of corruption. And there's a scene at the beginning where Willie Stark undergoes this radical transformation from an idealist lawyer and a weak gubernatorial candidate into a charismatic and extraordinarily powerful governor. And what happens is, he's failing. He, can, he knows he's failing. He has these ideas for how he wants to change government, how he wants to affect society in a positive way. And he's up on stage giving these speeches, and he's not hitting the notes. He's not dividing the audience. He's not pressing on the hot-button topics that will get him trending as if anything was trending in the early 1900s. And he realizes it. He senses that it's not going well, that he's going to be a failed politician. And then at night in his hotel room, a political operative comes and visits with him. And they sit down and they have a heart-to-heart. -heart and they drink a lot of booze. And he eventually breaks down, just crying, laying on the floor, crying. After the political operative explained to him how futile his quest was, this idealist quest to be the next governor of Louisiana and change the system. That night, his dreams were shattered. It was revealed to him how the sausage is made. And he was crushed. And he had a choice. He, he, he didn't know what to do. He was lost. He was distraught. And he was drinking late into the night and then just passed out on the floor due to sheer exhaustion, mental exhaustion. But the next morning... It was like when he woke up, a switch was turned in his brain. 
and he became a completely different person. His ambitions were the same. His passion was the same, but he had repurposed it. He looked at his convictions. He looked at his idealism, and he said, to hell with it. To hell with my convictions. To hell with my morality. To hell with my dignity. Just tell me what to do, and I'll do it. Just tell me what I need to do to win, political operative. And then he went on to become the most powerful and corrupt governor in the history of Louisiana. And the book explores this, this, these roots of ambition and the butterfly effect of these pivot points in a person's life. And I think it's a dilemma that people point to in politics all the time. I think it's a, it's a dynamic that we understand is happening behind the scenes and it makes us uncomfortable, but we just have to implement this suspension of disbelief and then go ahead and vote for that politician anyway. Because we have an idea that this is how things go in the background, that the candidates that make it to the ballot aren't necessarily candidates that we really truly believe in deep in our hearts. They're just the best of what's available and we have to pick somebody. It's like the running backs in 2015. You have to pick someone. I'm not in love with Eddie Lacy. I'm not in love with DeMarco Murray, but they're the best of what's available. And with politicians, knowing that the most ambitious people that can climb to that stratosphere in society have to have something in them that is a fire that really burns and is a fire that you can imagine would burn through morality, would burn through any ethics challenges that were presented to them. You can look at someone that's in a place of power and ask, what are the true roots of your ambition? How did you get there? Are those roots virtuous? Is your altruism that you are espousing, is that real? Or when you open the hood and you see how the gears work, are you always going to find this imperfect political process that self-selects the immoral actors and says, you, you can ascend. You, idealist, you're going to fail. You don't have what it takes. And if that's true, I think that most people that are the self-described realists out there in the world, I think we, we believe that that's true. Like I said, deep down, I think we know that's how the sausage is made. And all the king's men helps to illustrate that. It helps you to see and really play it out in your mind. Take that next logical step and say, okay, in order to truly harness human ambition, do ethics and morality have to be sacrificed in the process? Does that necessarily mean that all of our leaders, that they're all empty suits just like Roger Goodell? Roger Goodell is obviously an empty suit. He is the, if there was a poster child among powerful people, Roger Goodell is that vapid politician, that shapeshifter without true conviction. He is that guy. He is the best example of that guy. But the question is, is that everyone in a place of power? Because is it a necessary step to leave your convictions behind to climb that ladder? Do the rigors of achieving a high-ranking office, making it to the top of a mountain, does it require that the hiker shed his morality backpack to make it to the top of the mountain? Do all leaders have to leave their moral compasses behind in order to win, like Willie Stark? So that was the aspect of human behavior and social dynamics that all the King's men explored, and explored it really well. And that's a thread of humanity that I find imminently interesting.
And that's why I absolutely love that book. And on that note, I am not selling Jeff Janis. It may be irrational, but I am not trading Jeff Janis right now for a second rounder. And if making a trade involving Jeff Janis, if dumping Jeff Janis to get a player, to make a playoff run, if a political operative came in and said, you have a choice, trade Jeff Janis now and have a chance to win your league, or hold on to Jeff Janis and you have no chance to win, I can proudly say that as of right now, I still have the conviction. I would still say, to hell with it, I'm keeping Jeff Janis. Once we get into the season, that may change. Thing is with Jeff Janis, I also hear that this is just preseason hype. Remember with Victor Cruz, just preseason hype. Don't get excited about this. You should be selling the hype. Sell the hype on Charles Johnson. We did a whole show on why that's a ridiculous idea. Always sell the hype. No, you don't always sell the hype. Sometimes you sell the hype. Sometimes you don't sell the hype. You don't sell the hype in the case of Charles Johnson. You don't sell the hype in the case of Jeff Janis. Everything that happens in the preseason isn't simply hype. What do you want? Do you want Jeff Janis to have a bad preseason? Do you want him to go out and make drops instead of score touchdowns? Would you rather him do that? I mean, what, what do you want? It's not my fault. He's having a great preseason. I love that he's having a great preseason. Are you kidding me? And then another buzzard writes in. Love Jeff Janis all you want. He's still raw. Oh, yeah. Still raw. The rawness fallacy. Love the rawness fallacy. Jeff Janis gets that same criticism that Devontae Parker gets. Raw. Where is the data to measure this rawness? It's just an anecdotal nothing. It's an empty remark calling someone raw. It's just storytelling. It's based on nothing. Here's why. Here's an example. How can a non-football expert who watches tape know when a player is running a lazy route or a route that is designed to be rounded off? Because you hear that, oh, his route running needs to be cleaned up. So there is a such thing as a speed out. Two kinds of outs. Speed out and a sharp out. One is a 90 degree out route. One is intentionally rounded off. How many film watching junkies know what play was called and what route was supposed to be run when they sit down and criticize the route they just saw on tape? We'll never really know. And therefore, the third parties that aren't embedded in the football organization can't really make those value judgments. And so when they come back and say, this player scored a 90 in his route running, that's subjective. And it could be a flawed measurement because of what I just said. The other thing is, do you really think Devontae Parker, Devontae Parker, one of the most precocious wide receiver prospects to come along in the last five years, dominator rating, athleticism, size, everything you want, a doppelganger of A.J. Green. Do you really think that that player doesn't know how to run an out route properly? Really? You armchair film addict, second guesser? You really think that? I mean, who are these people? Again, not affiliated with any NFL organization. Just sitting back, watching draft breakdown on their couch. Who are they to judge these athletes at the height of their profession? To judge their technique? I'm not. I can't do it. But plenty of people think they can. And those people think that Jeff Janis is raw and Devontae Parker is raw. 
But they love Jarvis Landry. Oh, yeah. Because the film watchers love hands-catching slot receiver prototypes. Because that is a, a successful receiver that they can perceive. Remember, the beat reporters around the New Orleans Saints for many years loved Lance Moore, but criticized Marcus Colston. Because Marcus Colston lacked nuance. He lacked hip fluidity. He couldn't separate like Lance Moore. Where's Lance Moore now? What do Lance Moore's career numbers look like compared to Marcus Colston? The problem is large receivers look slower to the eye. Packers beat reporters love Miles White for that same reason. They prefer Miles White because Miles White looks quicker, more agile, more fluid because he's smaller. To the eye, Jeff Janis looks like this lumbering professional wrestler, 220 pounds, when actually he's just out there dominating, and Miles White is going to get cut. But that's why people like Jarvis Landry, because he's out there playing in the slot, hands catching short passes. And that's something that you can easily perceive. Wow, look at the hands catching he's doing on those short passes. Matt Harmon, who does the Reception Perception blog, he scored Jarvis Landry with excellent marks in his success rate versus coverage metric. Very few receivers score poorly in that metric, I might add. But the depth of target was not a factor that was discounted for. Because if it was, you would significantly reduce Jarvis Landry's success rate versus coverage. Because Jarvis Landry had only 2.6 air yards per target in 2014. That was league bottom. It's one thing to succeed versus coverage against a nickel corner close to the line of scrimmage. It's a completely different animal to make acrobatic catches down the field, which is something that Kenny Stills and Devontae Parker do. And hands are always overvaluated by film watchers because it's something they can easily measure. Again, it's a binary event, catch or not catch. And those close to the line of scrimmage throws, you have to catch them with your hands in order to complete the reception because they're moving fast. You're at close range with the quarterback. Better catch it with your hands. Deep passes, you can cradle. Deep passes aren't nearly as straightforward to catch with your hands. But the outside receivers sometimes get penalized by film watchers because they're pinning the ball to their body. You know who else like to pin the ball to his body on a deep ball? Jerry Rice. Also, lateral agility, something that Landry lacks, and verticality, something that Jarvis Landry lacks, are less perceptible on film. They're more immeasurable on film. That's why we have playerprofiler.com. That's why you go to Jarvis Landry's player profiler page and you see a player who's 5'11 and 205, so he's small. He runs a 4.65, which comes out to an 85.3 height-adjusted speed score, 18th percentile. His burst score is in the first percentile. His agility score is in the zero percentile. And his catch radius is in the zero percentile. His spark score, incidentally, is in the zero percentile. So these are things we can measure about Jarvis Landry. And it's all league bottom in terms of athleticism. He's the least athletic wide receiver in the league. His best comparable on playerprofiler.com is Robert Woods, but that is a friendly comparable for Jarvis Landry. Jarvis Landry wishes he was as athletic as Robert Woods. That's why Devontae Parker, who can do it all, is actually the Dolphins' number one wide receiver. Yet their ADPs are very different. Jarvis Landry's ADP, 61.7. Devontae Parker, 109.7. Now, I'm not worried about Devontae Parker's foot. I mean, I am a little bit worried, but... 
We've seen Julio Jones come back. We've seen Allen Robinson come back, and their ADPs aren't affected by their surgically repaired feet. So why should Devontae Parker's be? The Dolphins remind me of a 2014 version of the New York Giants wide receiver core with Victor Cruz versus Odell Beckham Jr. Victor Cruz, the slot receiver with a history of making hands catches versus the dynamic playmaker that threatens all quadrants of the field. That's Odell Beckham Jr., and that's the parallel I see between Odell Beckham Jr. and Devontae Parker. Parker starting the year injured, Odell Beckham Jr. starting the year injured. It's funny with these injuries, how arbitrary it is, how much we think that the injuries in preseason, how much they impact the rankings. Projecting games missed and how much that is going to impact our rankings. People are still taking Le'Veon Bell with a top five pick, despite the fact that he will miss two games. Those same fantasy gamers who are happily drafting Le'Veon Bell first overall, they should have been happily drafting Odell Beckham Jr. in 2014 and stashing him. And those same people should be drafting Devontae Parker this year and stashing him. And like Odell Beckham Jr. last year, Parker's problem is that there is an established incumbent. But that established incumbent has a slot receiver profile, like Victor Cruz. Only this time, Jarvis Landry isn't even close to as athletic as Victor Cruz. Jarvis Landry wishes he had Victor Cruz's speed, burst score, and agility score. But predictably, we see the Miami Dolphins beat reporters predicting that Jarvis Landry will be Tannehill's clear-cut number one and exceed 90 receptions. Come on. Seriously. But that's the thing. Jarvis Landry does the easily perceptible things well. Therefore, he has a gigantic built-in advantage with those that are watching practice and watching the tape. Just like Miles White and Devontae Adams in Green Bay. The beat reporters who watch practice from a distance perceive Miles White and Devontae Adams having better practices than Jeff Janis. The problem is they can't truly perceive what they're watching. Oh, Jeff Janis let that deep bomb go off his fingers. Let's report that as news. Oh, Devontae Parker rounded off that route in practice. Let's report that as news. Wait a second. A deep double move glancing off of Janis' fingers is more impressive than a short catch out of the slot. You do realize that. Tell me real quick how many deep, explosive plays that Rashard Matthews or Jarvis Landry or Miles Austin and Devontae Adams on Green Bay, how many deep, explosive plays are they making in practice? Oh, that's right. None. Zero. Because that's not their game. Because they are not threatening all quadrants of the football field like Jeff Janis and Devontae Parker can do. Like Odell Beckham Jr. can do. Yet you read the criticism of Jeff Janis in the local newspaper, and it's, it's rife with this gratuitous criticism, referencing all kinds of plays that happen every day in practice to every player. Passes well defended in practice, drops in practice. That happens to every player. But somehow these gratuitous micro-critiques get reported about Jeff Janis. He's a number four receiver. Since when are we reporting individual plays and practices that happen to the number four wide receiver. When did this happen? What, what is this world we're living in? God, we are talking about practice.